Well, as you get out your Bibles, uh, I just wanted to, to, to say a couple words before I got into our text today as a bit of a reminder. I'm going to read you something out of 2 Timothy. It says in 2 Timothy 3.15, that the sacred writings, for Timothy that was the Old Testament, the sacred writings are able to make a man wise through salvation, or excuse me, make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This book, this book, it's just ink on a page, but this book is the living Word of God that is able to bring life in a dead soul. And he goes on, he says that all Scripture, all of the Bible is breathed out by God. It comes from the very breath of God, and it is able it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, thoroughly furnished, that this is what we need, believer. Amen? Amen. This is the truth that we have today when all of the world is coming up against us and the church with lies. This is the concrete, absolute foundation that we stand upon. If I just want to say, if anyone was was wondering that as long as I'm here, we're going to be led by this book. There will be no other source of truth, no other nonsense coming into this pulpit. And any man that gets in this pulpit without this book, myself included, is not worthy to stand before this church. This will be the source of truth that we stand upon in FBC as long as the Lord would will me to be here. So just wanted to make sure that we are certain of that. If you've come today for anything other than God's word, you might be let down. But we will today open up the Word of God, and Lord willing, we will do that every Sunday after Sunday, and may God bless richly the preaching of His Word. So we are in John 18 today. I read this text last week, but we're going to actually look at it in a little bit more depth today. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and get it out. If you don't, there are Bibles under the seats. Last week, we saw the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was there praying before his father in anguish, really in tear. His, his sweat was coming off as if drops of great drops of blood. And he prayed to his father about this cup that he had set before him, the bitter cup of his suffering. And he said, if there's any other way, any other path of obedience, any other... <laughs> there went the camera. Any other way that we can, that he could fulfill his ministry... But nevertheless, my Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we continue on now as Jesus got on that path, that road of obedience into the hour of his suffering. And we come now to his betrayal. So this is the word of the living God. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Then they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we do thank you that you've given us this certain, sure, sufficient word. That you've given us a word that speaks to your church with authority. That this word is the bedrock, the faith once for all delivered to the saints that you've called us to contend for, to stand firm upon and, and to stand against the wiles of the devil that would seek to ask that age-old question, has God really said? So we pray now, Lord, that you might bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you might bring life where there is none, that you might bring vitality where there is uh, sleepiness and weariness. Pray that you might give us all minds to, to receive today. Give us um, some energy to sit as we sit here, Lord, as our bellies potentially are grumbling for food, we pray that all those things would be set aside as we sit for this short time under your word. Bless this time. May I not fear man, but fear God. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there really is not many things worse than being betrayed by someone that you love. Someone that you trust. Someone that is supposed to, to, to be respectful and to have your best interest in mind. Now, there are many famous accounts of betrayal that you can see back in the annals of history. Uh, one of them that is more known if you're into history was the betrayal of Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor. He had a nephew named Brutus, and Brutus loved Julius, but he also, or he, he more loved the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, and he, was, he had a, a, a steadfast allegiance to the state. And some of his fellow senators, they used this allegiance that he had to turn him against his uncle. They wanted to have a coup and get Julius out of there. So they used Brutus's allegiance to the state to turn him against his uncle, whom he loved. He was very conflicted, but ultimately he went with a band of men and they stabbed Julius Caesar to his death some 23 times. You may have heard of a man in the 1980s during the Cold War, named Aldrich Ames. He was an alcoholic. His wife had, a, had, a, had expensive taste for fancy things, and he didn't make much money. And he was in the CIA. In the CIA, he had access to all of the military operations and every operative's location and identification that was working in Russia. He had an offer that he could not refuse, and he sold this information for $4.6 million dollars. In so doing, he compromised about 100 different military ops, and 10 of those agents were executed as they were exposed through his 
through his treason. He ended up spending uh, or getting life in prison for his crimes. There have been countless betrayals throughout human history. Many of them no one knows about in families, in marriages, in homes, in, in churches, sadly, often. But nothing, I don't think, reaches the height of the betrayal of Christ by Judas. Twelve men, out of all people of all time, walked intimately with Christ like the apostles did. Only twelve ministered with Christ in this way, knew Jesus in this way. Judas, for three years, prayed, preached, wept with Christ. He saw the deaf hear. He saw the blind see. He saw the dead live. He experienced the compassion, mercy, and love of Christ firsthand every single day. He had all that the evidence a person could ever have to the divinity and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Yet he betrayed Christ, stabbed him in the back. So the title today is simply The Betrayal of Jesus. And I'm going to do things a bit differently today. I'm going to walk through the text and I'm going to save the application for the end. So we're going to just kind of go through the narrative and then five points of application at the end. So firstly, John chapter 18 and verse 1, uh, I want to highlight the fact that Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. Not only is he betrayed with a kiss, but he's betrayed in a very personal, intimate setting. So I'm going to read from John 18, and I'm also going to read from Matthew chapter 26. John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Matthew 26, 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Do you see here from the outset, there's just a real sinister, slimy sort of feel to Judas here in this garden. This is a place where these men came to be alone. They came probably to be refreshed, probably to get away from the throngs, from the crowds. It says they met here often. He took them there with his disciples. They probably prayed there together, sought the Father there together. He probably discipled them together uh, there, encouraged them there. They probably rested there, napped there, found just some solace away from the throngs of the people that were constantly converging upon Christ. This was a special place that only they knew about, an intimate setting where friends shared the company of one another. Not only that, but he comes to this place with a kiss. Now, it's not a general greeting today for a man to greet another man with a kiss, at least not in the States, right? Some countries it still is. To do that today would be extremely intimate and personal for a man to kiss a man on the cheek. Not unheard of, but uncommon in America. Even if it was common back then, it's still a very personal and intimate thing to come and kiss a person and get that close. You have to really break that area of, of personal comfort, personal 
space and get face to face as close as you possibly can to another human. It seems that Judas plays this game of, of being a phony until the last minute. It seems to me, and I don't know all the details, they're not all here, but it seems to me Judas could have picked him off, pointed him out from afar. He could have said, hey, that guy over there with the black, the, the, the brown tunic on, he, he's the one. That's, that's, that's Jesus right there. But he wanted to come to him face to face. The sign was a kiss that he would use to show them, this is the man whom you are to seize. He seems to have no real shame at this point in his sin. Hands Jesus over for a handful of silver. Now let's be clear, Jesus is not caught off guard. He's not shocked by the things that are taking place. As he said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He knows exactly what is about to happen. He said all the way back in John 6, he told the crowd there, some of you do not believe, and it says, John then says parenthetically, that Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. Imagine Christ for these past three years knowing that Judas, as it says in John 6, 70, was a devil and loving him, ministering to him, ministering with him and washing his feet in the upper room, knowing that he was about to go stab him in the back and hand him over to be killed. We read in John 13, when Jesus says, the one that dips this morsel with me is my betrayer. When Judas does that, it says, Satan entered him. So we see just the real sinister nature of this betrayal. He's betrayed with a kiss in a very intimate and personal setting. Secondly, we see that he is ultimately betrayed by all. By the whole world. The world basically coming up against him here. Look again in verse 3 of John 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Matthew 26, verse 55, it says, At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me there. But all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and they fled. I want to point something out that you can't see in the ESV, but it's clearer in the New American Standard if you have a New American Verse 3 of John 18 says that he received a Roman cohort, a Roman cohort or, or a detachment of soldiers and the offices, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So I said the world is coming after him because we have here the Jews, the religious people, and the pagans, the Roman Empire, converging together, joining forces to come and seize Christ and arrest him and take him off to his crucifixion. Jesus, of course, died during the Passover festival, a very fitting picture ordained in God's providence that Christ would die at that time as God's people are celebrating the fact of the Passover meal, of the Exodus, right? When God's people were leaving Egypt and he said, I'm going to, for the final plague, I'm going to send my destroyer to destroy all of the firstborn, not just of Egypt, but all 
But if Israel was to take God at his word to kill an unblemished lamb and to put that blood over the doorpost of their home, then God's awful wrath would pass over his people and they would be spared. And here Jesus is giving his life as that celebration is happening, that he would be that perfect, without blemish, sacrificial lamb that would die and his blood would be shed for his people and all that are under his blood are spared from the wrath of God. This was a high feast where thousands upon thousands of Jews would converge onto Jerusalem. They would come to the holy city to celebrate, to worship. And because of that, there would always be an extra presence of Roman soldiers. Same thing today if there's a parade or something, all the police are on duty for security, making sure things are safe. Now, a Roman cohort, the full cohort, was about was a thousand men. 760 foot soldiers, 240 cavalry. But they were often broken off into smaller factions. Either way, it's probably not the whole thousand, but either way, this is an incredible show of force for this little preacher, right? That's been everywhere day after day, peacefully preaching the gospel. And then they join with the temple police. The Jews are the one leading the charge. These are men that were probably under the Sanhedrin. They were guards of the temple, and they were sent out, dispatched with these Roman soldiers to go and arrest Christ. Treated as if he is some common criminal. Right? They come out with clubs and swords. But something happened. Something significant happened in that first large section that I read. You probably heard it. It probably caught your ear. And it's in verse 4. I want, you to, I want to see this. Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell on the ground. Now what? What is going on here? Jesus just says two words. Really, in the Greek, it's two words. And they fall back, laid out on the ground. Now, those words, ego I may, I am, and I, I didn't put the he in there because it's not in the original language. Again, if you have a New American Standard or a New King James, I believe, that word he will be in italics. That means that the translator have inserted the word. It's not actually in the Greek, but they put it there to help understand in the English. But what he says was, I am. Now, that phrase is very significant in the Bible, but certainly in John's Gospel. Right? We lo we've looked at the seven I am statements of Christ. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd, and I am the true vine. And all those different metaphors that speak of his role as redeemer, as how he would come. He's the door. He's the only access to God. Men must come through him. But there's one that's my favorite that's not on that list, and that's taken from John 8, 58. As Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees as he does, he says this to them, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? I love using that verse for people that try to say, as many do, that Jesus never claimed to be God. That we Christians, we've made that up. We've kind of twisted the word and we've put that in there. But Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Many will say that. Muslims. 
But the Pharisees seem to understand exactly what he meant, because all you got to do is read the next verse. It says in, in verse 59 that they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, this is not a rock fight. They're not playing some primitive form of baseball. They want to bludgeon his skull and end his life right there at the moment because he had made himself out to be God. They called him a blasphemer, right? Because he was, he was invoking God's name, the divine name. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see Isaiah 40 to about 55 over and over and over. The Lord says, I am, I am, I am the Lord. And he is going back to Exodus chapter 3, right to the burning bush. Remember when Moses saw that bush and he, he asked the Lord, who should I say sent me? What is your name? And what did he say? I am that I am. Right? I, I be, I exist is what that really means. And you see it in the burning bush. The bush is burned, but it's not consumed. There is a fire that is self-existent. It needs no fuel. He simply is. He exists. He, is, he has aseity in himself. He is the self-existent God. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist. He simply is. Jesus invokes that name, and these men fall on their backs. I want to read a couple of quotes to you that I think bring some of this out. The first one is from John Calvin. And he says this, At that time, in the garden, at that time, Jesus stood as a lamb ready to be... Can I ask you, hold on, how's the temperature in here? Good? Cool? Okay, I'm roasted. Good, okay. I thought everybody was out here falling asleep. <laughs> Praise the Lord, all right. <laughs> so at that time, he stood as a lamb ready to be sacrificed. His majesty, so far as outward appearance was concerned, was gone. You didn't look at Jesus in this garden and see God. You saw a man that was crying, that was in anguish, that was, that was disheveled. Yet when he utters a single word, his armed and courageous enemies fall down on their backs. And what was that word? He thunders no fearful excommunication against them. He only replies, I am. Calvin makes the application. What then will be the result when he shall come back? Not, beloved, not to be judged by a man, but to be the judge of the living and the dead. Not in that mean and despicable appearance, but in shining heavenly glory and accompanied by his angels. He says that he intended at that time to give proof of the, of the truth of the prophet Isaiah in his words. Then he quotes Isaiah eleven fourteen or 4. It says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Calvin is making the point that a little glimpse of that was shown when Jesus simply said, I am, and his enemies were laid out on their backs. One more quote, Alexander McLaren. He says, I'm inclined to think that here there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh, a tiny little peak of his divinity. A, a spark was, was exposed, was revealed, an emission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled within him. And that was enough to prostrate with strange awe, those rude and intrusive men. When he said, I am, there was something that made them feel, this is one before whom violence cowers abashed and in whose presence impurity has to hide his face. 
Jesus Christ. His glory is, fail, is veiled in his humanity, but he speaks two words and he lays out these men on their backs. Lastly, I want to see all this has taken place. We have a band of soldiers coming to arrest Christ, but do not be mistaken, church. Jesus is betrayed according to the decree of his Father. He is betrayed according to God's decree. Remember, he said, shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? We want to be clear that Jesus is not being overpowered here. He is not ran over by a bunch of thugs and taken away against his will, but he is peacefully giving himself over to fulfill the perfect plan of his heavenly Father. He is fulfilling a covenantal promise enacted before the foundation of the world to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he says that again in verse 11, John 18, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He sees this as given to him by the Father, not sinful men overtaking his ministry. He says in Matthew 26, 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and at once He will send more than 12 legions of angels, warrior angels, to come and decimate this place at the snap of a finger, should He so desire? But He says, How then should the Scripture be fulfilled, that it must be so? This is all according to His perfect plan. He is simply walking in the work that He came to do. We've seen previously, we, can, we, we know this because he predicted it. He predicted that thing, these things would take place. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, he said there that we're going up to Jerusalem. Now hear the clarity here. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, and crucified. And praise be to God, he will rise on the third day. But you see, Jesus had a full understanding of what was to take place. Taken captive by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, flogged, crucified, and rise on the third day. Not only did he predict that these things would take place, but later on, the apostles, they claim responsibility. God, through his word, claims responsibility for the crucifixion. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, you've heard it before. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see the absolute sovereignty of God next to man, sinful man's responsibility. This is all according to God's plan, but you lawless men, you crucified him with your own hands and you are guilty for your sin. Or Acts 4.27, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now consider for a moment the, the um, minute detail 
of God's decree, of his sovereignty. You have Herod, you have Pilate, you have the Gentiles, and you have the people of Israel. Think about the millions of free will choices of all of these individuals working together. And when I say free will, I mean they acted out of their own volition. They did what they desired. They were not puppets. They were not robots. They had hatred for God in their heart, and they came up against his Messiah. They released a criminal, a murderer, into the community so that Jesus could be sent to his death. They did what they wanted out of the sin of their own heart. But God says it was according to the plan in his hand, what what he had predestined to take place. Jesus is handed over, not because he is overrun by sinners, but because it was God's decree from the beginning that he would come and give his life as a ransom. So he's betrayed. He will eventually suffer and die. And it is all according to the eternal decree of God. So that's my brief exposition of the text. And I want to make some points of application. What does this, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? How does this text speak to us here today? May, what is it? 16th, day of our Lord, 2021. I want to say, firstly, you may be here today and you may have experienced um, extreme betrayal in your life. Someone may have shattered trust, stabbed you in the back, a friend, an ally, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a mother, father. Uh, and you may still, to this day, bear those wounds upon your soul. I, I, I hope we can see from this text and many others that our Lord Jesus Christ knows what it means to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be betrayed by those closest to you. He knows what it means to have one of your closest friends literally sell you for a handful of silver to be handed over to die. And we read, because of that, in Hebrews chapter 4, that we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. The encouragement then is let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. I just want to give you that exhortation if you're here and you've been pricked with a memory of a betrayal in your life that Jesus Christ knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He knows the hurt, the scars. And He offers mercy and help in your time of need. As He says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Secondly, I want to make an application from the life of Judas. Religious deeds and knowledge and closeness to sound teaching does not a Christian make. Religious deeds and knowledge and closeness closeness to sound teaching does not a Christian make. Judas had it all. He had access to Christ. He had closeness. He had truth. Not only did he have truth in the preaching, but he had truth embodied in Jesus. He saw, I mean, imagine hearing a sermon. This is, this is real application. Hearing Jesus preach and then seeing him right there live out what he just preached and embody it perfectly and do exactly every moment of his life the things that he taught. Judas saw with his eyes Jesus teach and preach and heal and love and forgive and cleanse lepers. 
He saw these things every day for three years, and it meant nothing. He was a phony. He was a pretender. And he may have had temporary faith in the beginning. He may have been like some of those soils in the garden that shoot up, right? They receive the seed, they receive the word, and for a time, there seems to be fruit, but the cares of the world overtake them. The birds of the air come and pluck them out of the ground. But we read that, G- that Judas did not just betray Christ in the end of his life, that he was a thief. Right? He took from the offering. He took for himself behind the scenes. So I would be remiss then not to see a warning here. Church, that we cannot trust in our religious achievements. We cannot trust in our dedication to a church, our dedication to a denomination. You know, some would say, I've been Southern Baptist for 65 years. Well, praise God. We can't find any hope in that, right? We can't trust in our specific ministry. You know, I've met some on the street, and they might say something to this effect. I've been at the soup kitchen serving for 42 years, and I've never missed a Tuesday. That's all well and good, and that may be very well be fruit of the gospel, but we cannot place our trust in any sort of religious activity that we partake of. Our trust must be in Christ, in Christ alone. As Judas would seem to be a fitting candidate, if someone's going to be saved, how could Judas not be saved? But here we see that closeness to Jesus was not enough. Have you rested today your soul, your eternal soul, upon Christ and Christ alone? Thirdly, wolves look and smell like sheep. Wolves look and smell like sheep. There is much today in the church, Christianity, that calls itself Christian. That is really anything but. Many pastors, many ministries, many churches being planted, many extravagant-looking churches and ministries on television that seem to be very fruitful. They have much money, much, much people in the pew, right? If bodies in the seat is any sign of fruit, then these ministries look to be very effective. They look and smell like they're Christian, uh, yet they are wolves. Think again about Judas. He was a thief, and no one knew. When Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, he tells them, one of you is a betrayer. Do you remember what they said? Is it me? Is it me? Now, now we would have probably thought that all eyes would have kind of went over to Judas. Oh, man, I knew that guy. He's always got extra cash. He takes off all the time. He's the one with the money. I knew he was up to no good. No, they were shocked. They had no idea that any of them were not faithful, and they were looking to themselves. Lord, is it me that's going to betray you? They had no clue because he looked like a sheep, but he was a wolf. And there are many men out there today, church, that are false shepherds. Men like Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, women like Joyce Meyer, Andrew Womack, John Hagee, any and everything coming out of Bethel, Reading. Beloved, avoid it. Stephen Furtick, Southern Baptist, quote-unquote pastor, that is the hero of every sermon and puts on a show every Sunday. Listen, I don't often name names, but honestly, this is low-hanging fruit that is obviously opposed to the gospel and about lining pockets. And I just want to warn that there are many wolves that smell like sheep. They have big ministries. They take little verses and they build motivational speeches around these verses 
but they have no gospel and they preach no Christ. And their message does not save souls, but it damns many to hell as they believe themselves to be in a faithful church because they see all the pomp and posterity of a big ministry. Wolves look and smell like sheep. We must be a people of the Word, that live in the Word, that know the Word, that can discern truth from error. Number four, remorse does not equal repentance. Remorse does not equal repentance. Now some might ask the question, did Judas repent? Is Judas in heaven right now? Did he, did he, did he, he was sad over his sin, right? He, he was very upset. Let's, let's dig into that a bit. Jesus said this about Judas, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that he not be born. It would have been better for Judas, Jesus says, that he was never born. John, or excuse me, uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of repentance versus remorse. That a person can have much regret over sin, but it doesn't equal repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.9, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Speaking of his first letter, he wrote them and said some hard things, and they were upset by that. And he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And interestingly, how did Judas meet his demise? It says in Matthew 27, 3, that Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned and he changed his mind, is what the ESV says. I don't love that rendering. Every other modern translation says that he was filled with remorse. He was filled with regret. He saw that, Ju that Jesus was innocent. He realized that he was wrong. And he went to the chief priest and he said, I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. They said, what is it to us? See to it yourself. And he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple and he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now, Judas had much um, regret over his sin. In the King James Bible, I think they maybe missed a bit on this one. I love the King James and I'm not saying that I am smarter than the men that translated the King James Bible or godlier. But... The word in the King James, it says Judas repented himself. That's the, the phrase it uses. But it uses a word that elsewhere always means remorse. It doesn't use the Greek word metanoia, which is a usual word for repentance. It uses another word. And in that Second Corinthians text, Paul uses both of the words. The word that is, that is translated repentance in Matthew 27. And he, he uses it for the word regret. And then when he says repentance, he uses metanoia. That word is not actually in the Matthew passage that has Judas grieving. He was remorseful over his sin. He saw that it was sin. He even said, I have sinned, but it led to death. And I think we could learn from that, that a person can have much sorrow and sadness and tears over sin. Sorrow over the consequences of sin. Sorrow over how it's impacted those around them. But it does not equal repentance before God. As David said in Psalm 51, remember the setting of Psalm 51, why he's, why he's confessing his sin? Because of Bathsheba, right? And Uriah the Hittite. Now, David knew he had sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He had sent him to his death. He had basically signed his, a death sentence for him. Sent him to the battle, pull back the troops, and let him 
let him perish. He knew he had sinned against Bathsheba. She was not his wife. He had taken a woman that was not his wife. Yet what does he say in Psalm 51? He says, against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. Because his heart was repentant before God. He had a godly grief as he knew that he had sinned before his God. Judas was led to despair and he hanged himself, but I do not believe that his remorse actually equaled repentance. Lastly, and finally, church, Christ took the ultimate betrayal for you. Christ took the ultimate betrayal for you. Our first parents back in that garden had a test. One thing that they could not do. And just like a child, you tell them the one thing they cannot do, and it is the one thing that they, with all their might, want to do. And our first parents in that garden failed that test. They succumbed to temptation. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully should have protected the garden, should have protected his wife. He took of that fruit, and all of the cosmos was plunged into sin and destruction from that point on. But Christ, on the other hand, stands tall at his hour of testing. He is not taken away by these bandits, but he gives himself freely to his accusers. He hands himself over that he would be that sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God. He endures the cross, despising the shame, and he does all that today that you might live. That you might walk and know true hope. That you might understand what it means to have peace with God, a peace that is beyond comprehension, that this world has no understanding of. He did that, beloved, that you would have hope. A hope that lasts beyond this life. An eternal hope. So that death is not the end. Praise be to God. Death is the entrance to our eternal reward. As Paul says, to die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We gain everything as we pass from this life to the next. So Jesus drank the bitter cup that was before him. He did that in obedience to his father. And he did that out of love for the people that were given to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we do thank you. We thank you for our Savior, your Son that you sent to give his life. Lord, we thank you that we today then now have peace with God, peace with our Maker. We thank you, Jesus, that you satisfied the demands of the law on our behalf. That we have no guilt today if we're in Christ. We have no shame today if we're in Christ. There is no death sentence over our head, but we've been freed. We've been freed from that. So we give you all the glory, all the praise. Thank you for this time. May you make the word effectual to the souls of every man in this room, every woman in this room. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.